You are listening to the sermon stream of the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. So tonight, Galatians 5, 13 to 15, our freedom in Christ. This is the very last words of Paul's closing argument on the main line of doctrinal development and argument against those who were bringing in the law and telling Christians to be saved by following it as well as the gospel and offering this amalgamated uh, law-gospel combination of which Paul called a different gospel. So let's read the closing argument of this section of the book. It's verses 1 to 15. We study the first two parts of this closing argument before, and tonight we're on the final part of the closing argument as the Apostle Paul will begin to shift and show how there's a shift from the doctrine in Christ uh, to proper behavior in Christ and to the practical or the ethical sections of the book of Galatians. So Galatians 1, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 1 to begin. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ is of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision. He's under obligation to keep the whole law. You've been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you'll adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. For you were called for freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. So we have this closing reiteration of the important points of his closing argument. Verse 13, where we start studying tonight, you were called to freedom, brethren. Well, we had back in uh, verse 1, the beginning of the closing argument, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Also, this do not turn your freedom to an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We had in verse 6, we had faith working through love instead of circumcision as of vital importance in the new covenant, in the covenant of Christ. So in the old covenant, you had to be circumcised, or Genesis 17, you were cut off from the hope of Abraham. Well, you need faith working through love, or you're going to be cut off from the hope that's in Christ in the gospel. So we're reiterating 
and closing down this main point uh, and this line of doctrinal development. And we're going to turn, as we see, now to the ethical and practical, and we see how these things are connected. Again, this main point of Galatians, of the doctrine, as it's stated in 2.16, Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one is justified. And even Abraham himself, his faith was counted as righteousness. So we are called to freedom. Now, we note this freedom here. We are called to freedom. Just as it said in chapter 5, verse 1, it says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Uh, We cannot decide uh, what this freedom is uh, without the context of the the, uh, argument, without the writings of Paul here in Galatians. We, we can't decide it's some, uh, you know, freedom from any kind of yoke or any kind of burden or any kind of constraint of which we don't like or we find ourselves today. It's not the kind of freedom that we talk about and celebrate on uh, the 4th of July. It's not freedom from Britain, obviously, that the Apostle Paul is talking about. It's not freedom uh, from uh, any kind of moral restraint, uh, some kind of uh, libertine uh, freedom just to do uh, whatever and to be immoral. It's certainly not that kind of freedom. It is the freedom that is in contrast with the bondage of the law. In chapter 3, 23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the faith should come. When the, the law was our guardian or our tutor, our disciplinarian, The law had us in confinement. And so there's a lot of bondage and slavery and confinement language in the book of Galatians that relates to the law of Moses. And it's from that now that we are free. Uh, Chapter 4 and verse uh, 1, a child, this is the time under under the law, uh, a child, uh, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ from a slave though he's the owner of everything. He's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we were children held in bondage under the elemental things of the world till the fullness of time. The time when the father said, the child is now going to be a responsible adult. Or we had the allegory in chapter four. Uh, We had Abraham with two sons, one of a bondwoman, one of a free woman. Uh, The son of the bondwoman was by the flesh the son of the free woman was by the promise. And he then said that there's two covenants, the one from Sinai, which they, the Jews all thought, hey, we have Sinai and we have uh, Isaac as our father. We're all children of Sarah. Uh, the apostle Paul said, no, uh, you're children of Hagar if you're depending on the flesh and you're more like Ishmael. And so you're, you're not the free. Uh, you are the child of the slave if you depend on the flesh. So this is the freedom This is the freedom of which verse 13 promises. It promises uh, this freedom from the law. It promises uh, freedom from that which the Apostle Peter said was a yoke, which we nor our fathers are able to bear. It's a freedom that uh, the law could not give, such as freedom from sin. Uh, We think about in John 8, Jesus said uh, that you would be free if you followed him. 
And the Jews said, hold on, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved to anyone, which if you look at the captivity, that wasn't true. Uh, but anyway, they said, we've never been enslaved to anyone. Uh, well, look what the Greeks did to them in the intertestament period. But uh, now again, never mind that. Uh, they said, we've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? He said to them, truly, truly, I say, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And the slave doesn't remain in the house forever, but the son does. So if the son makes you free, you're free indeed. And if you were really Abraham's descendants, you wouldn't try to kill me. Although then Paul comes along and says, yeah, you are like Abraham's descendants. You're just like Ishmael, people. You're just like Ishmael. All right, so this is the freedom. Freedom from sin and freedom from the law. And so all that that was under the law, the subjugation, the burden, the enslavement, the being severed from Christ, the being fallen from grace, that's not what the Christians have. That's not for those who are of faith. But even though you're set free from the law, you still have some moral obligation. Only don't turn your freedom, Paul says. Don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. So freedom from the law does not mean freedom to do whatever it is you might want, and especially not to for license, not license for sin. So <coughs> the faith comes with the morality and the teachings of the gospel. The gospel by the Spirit teaches things for us to do. And so it's not just a license to do everything. It's sort of like when you tell people, no, we don't follow the Ten Commandments today. And for people who are used to the Ten Commandments, and they've been taught that we follow the Ten Commandments, as soon as you tell them, well, we don't follow the Ten Commandments today, they say, oh, uh, does that mean that I can kill? Does that mean I can take the Lord's name in vain? Does that mean, and then just supply one of the things of the Ten Commandments, and say, does that mean I can do that? Well, no, because I got another passage. I got a gospel passage that says not to do that. So we are not, in our freedom, uh, called to license. We are not called to fleshliness uh, because we're set free from the law. Now, the law was to constrain people from a lot of fleshly things. And it just gave a prohibition, don't do this. And you think about the first generation of the law was given to uh, those people who had been slaves in Egypt and uh, really had never learned to master themselves because they'd always been under another master, which had some great restraints upon them. When they got free and were not under those outside constraints, they weren't good at all about constraining themselves. And that happens sometimes in the gospel. You tell people, uh, that there's a freedom in Christ, and they immediately go to, oh, a freedom that means no restraint. But no, it's not a libertine freedom uh, that is being offered. It is a, a gospel way of moral content and moral instruction, not a law way of moral content and moral instruction. And so the law, uh, kind of, it was a very external thing. Uh, the book of Hebrews will talk about it being you know, things of the flesh until the time of Reformation. The law was kind of like a speed limit sign. If you see a speed limit sign as you go down the highway, there's several things about that speed limit sign. One is it's outside of your car. It's outside of you. It was placed there by an outside authority. 
And I guarantee the highway department in the city did not ask, what do you think the speed limit should be here? Because if they ever asked me, what should the speed limit on this road be here? I would tell them a number that's quite a bit higher usually than the posted speed, right? Especially between, uh, you know, Mulvane and Derby. I don't know. They, I did not know they had so many grandmothers that work for the Kansas Department of Transportation. But they have a grandmother division that's in charge of setting the speed limits, especially, you know, approaching uh, and in between, in between towns. So that is, that is an ex, as external a restraint as it is possible uh, to be. And what that sign says doesn't seem to affect my mind at all, right? My mind says I should do this, but that sign says I should do that. And let me ask you, over time, which one wins? Well, it's too often, too often a bit of a seesaw. Some days it's one, and some days it's other. Uh, that is not a legally binding admission of anything, I, I will assure you. Uh, but in any case, you can follow that sign or not. Now, that sign has no power to make you do it, but that sign does condemn you if you break it, Right. So it doesn't really change your mind or compel you in any way other than fear of fines to follow it. It can condemn you or it can justify you if you follow it. Uh, and, you know, if you break it inadvertently, you're still condemned. And once you're condemned by it, you can't be re-justified. And again, you could violate it without even realizing it. Uh, you can violate it without even thinking about it. It really doesn't, it has a limited power to restrict and it has a, a power to condemn, but it doesn't have much power to change my mind. Now, an inner law, a, a law that would come by faith, a law like the gospel written on the hearts and minds, especially a law that is motivated by love, that would have a much greater power to shape compliance. That would have much, uh, be much more willing to comply uh, to, to a law of love, uh, to a law of which uh, you've come to agree, and especially if you think about gospel instruction, of which on occasion, not often, but occasionally, even the gospel is called a law. Uh, talking about in the next chapter, talk about the law of Christ, which is to bear one another's burdens. Or James will talk about the perfect law, the law of liberty, speaking of gospel. And so the, go the gospel can be called in some ways a law. Uh, this law, written on the hearts and minds, uh, coming with it, uh, with it, the power of forgiveness. Coming with it, the cleansing of the conscience. Coming with it, the the power of the Holy Spirit to to help uh, us to shape our minds to it. Offered with the love of Jesus and His sacrifice behind it. That's a whole different kind of law than that external sign that just says "don't" when you still really want to. And so it's, 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 it's a very different game. It's on an entirely different playing field. It's a whole different thing, even if in some ways the desired behavior uh, is the same uh, from outside observation. And so our freedom is not for an opportunity of the flesh. Our freedom is through love to serve one another. Now, did the law already teach some service of one another? Yeah. Did the law already teach, as we'll read, uh, to love your neighbor? It did. Uh, but it did it by fiat. It did it by external command. 
Now, you should have internalized that if you're a person of faith, and many faithful people of God did. But the law uh, would teach some of these same principles. And here now, we're loving, uh, giving loving service to one another, not on the basis of the law, but on the basis of that uh, commitment to Christ. We're doing it on the, the basis of what Christ has done for us and what return uh, we should make for him. And so in that way, a Christian morality, a Christian ethic, is different than the external things of the law. Uh, yes, it's, it's moral, but it's not that uh, you know moralism where it's just good behavior for good behavior's sake. Uh, kind of like, you know, you better not cry, you better not pout, you know, because, you know, but it better be good for goodness sake. Um, well, just for the sake of goodness, we don't seem to do a lot. But uh, for the sake of one who died for us, for the sake of one who saves us, for the sake of one who has done so much for us, we, we might and we should uh, do quite a bit better. And so the, the morality that's in Christ is not a, an unattached morality. It's not an external morality. It's an inner morality. Now, there's instructions with it to guide the internal uh, morality that's written on our hearts and our minds. But the morality of Christ and the morality taught in Christian doctrine doesn't work and is not empowered to work aside from trusting in Christ. Without the faith in Christ to enliven a heart to do this, it's, it's just not going to happen. It'll just be another set of external laws. And we see this every time uh, we try to uh, have non-believers follow Christian morality. Uh, what happens if we make our laws to comport with Christian morality? And to a large degree, we should. They're beneficial and helpful laws. But what do people do with laws, legal laws, that comport to Christian morality? They break them. I mean, they break the most basic of them. Thou shalt not murder, right? Don't steal. Uh, uh, don't, don't take from people and don't hurt people. And, you know, Matt down at the prosecutor's office, what does he have to deal with all day long? People who can't even do that. And so then we think it take, take it down to a more basic level. Uh, what about in our own children or others that we have seen, maybe in our own lives at a time of our own immaturity, where we were asked to behave as Christians, though we weren't living by faith in Christ. How well did that work? And so why do people have so many trouble with rebellious teenagers? We're asking them to live by Christian morality when they don't have faith in their hearts. And so we end up uh, uh, appealing to them in all manner of way, by parental authority, sometimes by legal authority, sometimes by school authority, uh, to act and behave in a right fashion. But without Christ in their hearts, who would ever follow Christian morality? Those of us with Christ in our hearts, we have a hard enough time with it, don't we? But what about those who don't have this in their hearts? It's a Sisyphean task. It's often as useless as Xerxes whipping the sea and cursing it. You know, the, the, the sea swept away his boats, swept away his pontoon bridge. And so he had, he had his men go out and lash the sea with chains. I'm sure the sea cared a lot. Well, what happens when you have uh, people who are uh, trying to compel other people to follow Christian morality when they don't have Christ in their hearts? 
It's just about as effective. And we know that sometimes by bitter experience. And so the Christian morality is for brethren. The Christian morality, again, verse 13, you're called for freedom, brethren. And so what we need is a repentant heart and the, the law of Christ uh, through faith written on our hearts and minds. And then we can really serve one another. Try to get people to serve one another without the love and faith of Christ in their hearts. And so you were called for freedom. Through love, you can really serve one another now. You can serve one another to the truest way and the fullest way. Now, in some ways, this is just repeating what the law said. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In this statement, love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting. The fullness of what the law taught is realized only in Christ. Why? Because now it comes from the heart instead of coming externally. It comes from the heart instead of coming externally. And some would ask, I think at this point, who are thinking more fleshly and wanting this freedom to be uh, looser in its morality and looser in its, its uh, chains that bind our heart. They say, is this really freedom? You mean the freedom is just to do what the law already said? Yeah. But to do what the law really said, to truly from the heart with loving service, do it because you have so internalized it by faith to have it on your hearts and your minds. And so freedom in loving service to do the things of the law in a new way. What was it Jesus said to his uh, apostles? He said, a new commandment I give you in John, that you what? That you love one another. How long should they have been loving one another? The whole time. But read about the apostles. Even though they were together uh, as, a, as a married band of 12, following Jesus around for years, were they loving each other as they ought? How many times did they have fights and quarrels and disputes about position and honors amongst themselves? And so without the law, without it being an external imposition, but it now being in the hearts and minds, uh, the brethren are free to show this love of neighbor to everyone. Everyone, especially those of the faith. And of course, in the faith were people from every tribe and tongue and nation, as Jesus would say, quoting uh, the Old Testament, a man's enemies would become those of his own house. There are these people now who you can show love and uh, service to that you never could before. So you go through the New Testament and even the book of Acts to a large degree, and how many times is there some kind of separation that's caused by the law? How many times did the peculiar ways of the Jews cause frictions with, well, sometimes amongst Jews, but also with Jews and everybody else around them. And so all those things about Jews and Samaritans. Well, in the gospel, what does it mean to be a Jew or a Samaritan? Who cares, right? Well, what about the between a Jew and a Gentile? All the Jewish exclusiveness in the law, gone in an instant in the gospel. As Paul said, circumcision or uncircumcision, it means nothing. And so in the gospels, we have things like the Syrophoenician woman who comes up to Jesus and she ends up begging for the crumbs that falls from the master's table. And in the gospel, what would she have been? 
She might have been one of the leading members of the church, right? She might have been one of the chief servants in the church. Or uh, just before Jesus' crucifixion, uh, the, the little note that John makes, of which we have, we know so little, and you know our imagination maybe runs wild about it just a little bit, but the Greeks who approach and want an audience with Jesus, and what do they get? You know, Jesus has come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He has almost nothing uh, to do uh, with them. And so during the time of the law, uh, even Jesus himself is primarily with the Jews. Not that he didn't concern himself from time to time with others, but it's primarily that. But in the, in the book of Acts, what do we have? It's not the, the Greeks being refused. Instead, we're now sending people to where they live, right? By the time we end the book of, of Acts, uh, what about Greeks who want to come and know Jesus? They don't have to go to Jerusalem to have an audience, hopefully, with him. Uh, some of them could have stayed at home and met his apostles uh, and his prophets at their hometown as they came to seek for them. Uh, the centurion who pled for Jesus' help but said, you know, I'm not even worthy that you come to my house. And by the end of the book of Acts, how many times has Paul been in the uh, uh, Roman officials' homes? Sometimes they're jails too. But how many times has he been in their homes? How many times has he been in the room uh, with them? How many times has he stayed at their house? Or even some of these inner Jewish divisions, uh, just before Paul, uh, Peter, pardon, just before Peter would go and preach the gospel to uh, Gentiles for the first time, where was he staying? In Acts 10, he's staying at Simon the Tanner's house, right? End of Acts 9, beginning of Acts 10. He's staying at the house of a man who under the law would have been considered unclean. Peter's staying at his house. No self-respecting teacher of the synagogue. No rabbi, uh, no, no uh, Pharisee instructor. None of them would have gone to the Tanner's house. Because when is that man and everything in his house unclean? Every day he touches dead animals. How many days a week do you figure that guy touched dead animals? Well, maybe every day but the Sabbath. And so those, those kind of things are all broken down. So all these exclusivities and peculiarities and all these things of the Jews, which were teaching through physical ways important lessons about holiness and you know, cleanliness and, and various things, all these things are swept away to get to the real essence of the matter. So that no matter who you are, uh, no matter what your situation, everyone who's a Christian uh, and with this faith in their heart and this freedom in Christ can fulfill in every substantial way the statement of the law. Again, the whole law is, is fulfilled in this one word, in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this one word, uh, it's interesting. Sometimes the commandments, uh, we call them commandments. Sometimes they're, uh, they're thought of as the Jews as being a word. So one word. And some of the commandments really could be uh, uh, conveyed in one Hebrew word. Like don't steal, don't murder, no adultery. You could summarize it in one single word because they had these compound words. In English, we have a lot of little bitty words we stack up together. And often the order of these words is important, and that's how we emphasize. In Hebrew, like some of the other languages, you have these longer compound words, 
So in one word, you could have a commandment. And so Paul, sort of playing on that, this one thing and this one thing alone, loving your neighbor and doing it as yourself, this fulfills the law. Of course, the law, uh, the Jews often, you know, as, as it was given, the, the law was given on two tables. And uh, uh, oftentimes we divide that to say, you know, there's one table related to God and one table related uh, to man. And that sort of fits the the great and second most commandment, because what's the first commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And so many times it's explained, that's table one. Table one, uh, you have the things of God. And table two, uh, you know, the the don't steal, the don't murder, no adultery, no false witness, no coveting, that goes on your love your neighbor. And so uh, there's sometimes the two tables of law. And so this whole this whole table uh, of law could be uh, this one, serve God, and this one, love your neighbor. It's also possible that by two tables of law, uh, it, it was two exact copies. Rather than having two parts, part A and part B of God and neighbor, it could be that there's two exact copies. Because uh, in the ancient world, when countries would make covenants, just like today when we make treaties, uh, if you make a treaty with a country, both sides get a copy, right? In the ancient world, when covenants were made, uh, both both parties in the covenant, they'd each get a copy of the covenant. And in this case, uh, you know, God didn't need to take his back to heaven with him. He knew what it was. So he, as it were, he leaves both copies with the, with the people. I'm not sure which of those is correct, actually, if there was two, two, two exact copies to make the two tables, or if there's table A and table B. But in any case, we, we have... Uh, all the requirements of the law regarding other people summed up, Paul says, in this loving your neighbor as yourself. So you're free to do that in Christ in substantial and heartfelt ways that under the law would not have been possible. You just couldn't have done it because, again, these Jewish peculiarities and these Jewish requirements of the law. But in Christ... All that swept away where you can get right to the heart of the matter through love, serve one another. But, and this is the first we've seen of this, but in the works of the flesh, we'll see this emphasized again. In the works of the flesh in the coming verses, a full third of the works of the flesh are things of disputes and envies and factions. And it's about people manifestly not getting along. And so the, 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 the work of the flesh coming up is going to have, you know, terrible things in it. Uh, it's going to have uh, uh, the, the use of drugs, the pharmakia. It's going to have the abuse of alcohol and drunkenness. It's going to have sexual immoralities and, and terrible moral failings, but also disputes, dissensions, and factions. It's going to have a full third of the list be things directly about getting along. And so when Paul says here in verse 15, don't bite and devour, and that's the, this is the closing statement of the closing argument. This is, this is where that ends. And it transitions to the moral and ethical. But he says, don't bite and devour one another. We gather that this doctrinal controversy among the churches of Galatia had resulted in factionalism and poor treatment of one another. Now, which doctrinal controversy has not devolved into that kind of thing? 
And often the poor treatment of people in doctrinal issues is sometimes a more substantial problem than the doctrine itself. Now, that doesn't mean the doctrine is not a problem, especially when it's wrong, uh, especially when uh, you know the, it's, it goes to the point of causing division. The doctrine's a problem. But the attitudes in fighting with one another on different sides of these things can be the same uh, in deleterious effect or can be worse. And so we haven't seen uh, too much emphasis yet in the book of Galatians about this. We had a little bit back in 416, am I your enemy because I tell you the truth? Some people are treating Paul like an enemy. And I'm sure, uh, you know, he'd probably count the teeth marks in his back by this point, but he just uses this very vivid imagery here of biting and devouring. Uh, biting and devouring. That's that's what hungry dogs do, right? What happens when the hungry dog gets a hold of a bone? It's going to be biting and devouring. And so we have this, we've had a little hint, not much, a little hint that there's been some really bad behavior in these disputes. And now between this and the works of the flesh, a third of it being about this, uh, I think we should see that there's there's probably been a lot of bitter acrimony. And there's uh, this uh, heresy uh, has caused uh, people to act poorly. Uh, probably some of the heretics have acted real poor to those that are faithful. But there's also those who've been faithful to the teaching at most times when it, who will, in hindsight, go, yeah, me, we might have argued a little, little on that too much. We might have sent that a little too hard. And so bitter controversies uh, and, and people going beyond and sometimes far beyond uh, right and reasonable and honorable debate and honorable argument. Uh, obviously, the Apostle Paul argues, right? Everything we read in all his books, there's arguments involved. It's not that we can't argue, but the, you know, he tells Timothy, don't be contentious. There's been some contention here among the Galatian brethren over these things, aside from the wrongness. And the, the, the problem is, he says, that you be consumed by one another. Uh, I, I've known of doctrinal controversies, of things that started as doctrinal controversies, that by the time they got sorted out, uh, there are people who just gave up on church and gave up on things of the faith because of people consuming them or consuming others in such a distasteful fashion that they said, I don't care who's right. I just don't want to be a part of this anymore. And that can't be. And so the truth must be contended for and using the Apostle Paul as a, a bit of an example of his concern, his kindness, uh, his his uh, making direct arguments, but we don't see him, do we, making these arguments personal. Very seldom are the personalities involved ever identified directly. The people would know, uh, but there's a, there's a, a restraint of which those who have the Spirit of Christ would do the arguing. Uh, the, you know, even Jesus himself, he dealt with the bitterest of enemies, uh, those prophesied by God, uh, to reject and kill him, and we still note with him the restraint with which he dealt even with those folks. So this is then the end of the doctrinal section, and it has transitioned to the moral section. 
So the moral section again, the, and the morality of Christ and the morality of Christians is based on the fact that we have a living faith. And that's the thing that enlivens and, and empowers us to live in this way so that Christianity is not for us just a different law, a, a slightly better law maybe in some way, uh, but still mostly external things to do or don't. Those The people of God had enough in the training period of the law for the external do or don't. This is to be the law written on the heart. This is to be the law taken in, in, in by faith and living in us as Christ lives in us. And so we were called for freedom. That doesn't mean license, but instead that means to love, serve one another, and certainly not to mistreat folks, because even the law said, love your neighbor as yourself, and the gospel's taken that to a new and higher level. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.